0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Nicholas Carlo, who joins us from Montreal, Canada. Nicholas is the author of understandlegacycode.com and is currently a senior tech lead at Busbud. Nicolas Cotto, welcome to Maintainable.
1: Yeah. Hi, Robbie.
0: <laughs> I'm glad to be here. So as you reflect on your time in the industry, what do you believe are a few common traits that a software application's codebase is being well-maintained?
1: Well, good question. Maintainable codebase to me will be one with uh, like a good readme first, so I can get into it very easily. Uh, I can have it running locally uh, quickly. I can do changes, so I, I will have test to tell me if the things is working or not so I can do changes and it will be also easy to to deploy so the the speed for me as a newcomer to that code base to get into it do a change ship it uh, yeah get it delivered that will be a good measurement for me of uh, that code base is well maintained or not
0: when you're talking about deploying is that
1: to like a production environment or staging type environments or yeah any of the above well Ultimately, to production, at least. Uh, If there are more, uh, that depends, case by case. Uh, Ideally, it should be easy for me to discover that. So documentation might be related to that, or at least having access to that knowledge. Then how to do that, it really depends. It can come in very different flavors. But uh, at the end, being able to jump on the project and be productive as soon as possible uh, without breaking things That will be my key measurement of its maintainable.
0: Do you often use the term technical debt in your day-to-day work?
1: Yeah, we we do use it. Although it's a convoluted word, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes people say technical debt uh, to to mean like code that is not bad code, maybe. Just like they say refactor when they instead want to say redesign or or change completely the way it's working. So I try not to abuse technical debt. When I use technical debt, I mean something we have decided consciously that we will not do the perfect way, but we're taking a shortcut for the moment and we will revisit later. So that will be my use of the technical debt.
0: And when you talk about, you know, you're making like a short-term trade-off there. Do you find that you found some good patterns for how to come back and actually do that versus making it a say wishful thinking that you're going to come back around and have the time to do that?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's um, so. For example, we have the we're developing features at work. Some, some of them are really new. So we, we don't really know if that will actually work or not and, and what to do. Uh, so we're taking shortcuts here on the, like when we have discussion with the business, we, go for the, we try to go for the simplest scenario and we say, okay, we're going to take some shortcuts here for the implementation so we can release as soon as possible. But we make it clear, for example, that if, they, if it works and we want to go for the full thing, then it will take us more time because we need to revisit what we have implemented. And so what we do concretely is we, we write that down in the issue, uh, like we're using GitHub issues for, for work, but uh, we, we track that. So we know that it's clear with the business that when we need to move on, there are all of these decisions, all of these shortcuts that we need to pay. I'm, I'm curious, because you mentioned earlier
0: on about being well-maintained, do you find that when you're, say, working towards that, maybe, I don't know if you're using like a minimum viable product type of approach for like some of those features that the business is curious about and they want to see if it works in, you know, w- in whatever capacity the, that application is trying to serve that business, but... Do you, are there some, some aspects to taking those shortcuts that are kind of directly at odds with the traits of a healthy and maintainable code? Like what sort of, what are some common things? Do you take shortcuts, like not bother writing tests, or do you feel like that's still an important thing to do early on?
1: Usually, so I'm speaking about implementing new features in an existing product. So in that case, uh, all of the heavy lifting of having tests in place have been done. So we have that already. So writing new tests when we write code doesn't take us much more time and it usually pays off. So we don't skip the test. This is not the kind of, even when we want to go fast, it's more on the um, implementation. So in the number of scenario and edge cases we're uh, handling. So usually what we will do is we will not handle a lot of, scenario. We will just handle the simplest scenarios. And of course, that allows us to do a simple test and have a, a very simple naive implementation. So the implementation will be really naive and uh, and it won't work when we want to scale or when we, we need to handle more uh, bus operators because we are, we're dealing with a lot of bus operators. But that's where we do the, the cut. So it doesn't really impact the maintainability of, of the thing. Although there is a trade-off on the maybe the documentation or the automation part that's true that when we when we start we don't automate much then the, for example in the new scripts or whatever needs to be created we start doing them manually first and it's only when we when we reflect and we know where we are going that we, we're gonna automate the thing so it's easier for someone else to jump into it so that will be the trade-off I see. And are those typically things you would be
0: doing and like, um, you know, you mentioned you're using GitHub issues and things like the track things, are you doing those in like special specific branches? And then do you often find yourself merging things into your primary, I'm not sure what your, you name, your branches there, but do those branches tend to have some of those shortcuts? And then do you try to clean that up before you get that kind of pushed out to production or do you just know that there's going to be some, some issues you're going to have to come back later and
1: tackle the way we use GitHub today, uh, it looks maybe more like open source than uh, like I, I used to work on on bigger project where we, we have like a master dev and uh, and then all the branches for different environments. What we do is that we have feature branches that merge into master and we try to keep the feature not last too long. So usually, for example, for one issue, we will have multiple pull requests. So we will integrate frequently. And when I say frequently, I mean multiple times a week. When I work on a branch, I will usually get that merge in in two days uh, back in master. So how do we do that? Because we, we were coding, but we, we cannot just finish the feature in two days but we're using a lot of um, um, like feature toggling for example when when we start working so we, we do use that to it's really easy to forget to clean up these uh, feature toggles so when when it comes to maintainability and, and the trade-off this is a trade-off feature we do feature toggling when we start working but at the end we, we also have an issue to clean up the feature toggle either we adopt or we reject. But uh, that way, we're able to merge into master frequently. So we do have branches; they don't last too long. Nice.
0: It sounds like a, a good and efficient efficient way to to manage that. I know that there is the uh, the challenge that developers often face, where you're working on features for a while, and maybe you're kind of jumping in and out of it, and then it's like it's like the great merge at some point that has to happen, and you're like, okay, this isn't gonna cleanly merge now, and like, what 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 are these other people been working on and trying to like match all that up can be definitely a big challenge. So I'm always curious how people are managing that effectively in different environments. And um, it always, it sounds nice. And it's always like one of those things I haven't seen it done well in a lot of the projects that I've been part of, but, uh, but I'm definitely curious about it and talk about it more with my own team. So, you know, you earlier touched on how technical debt can be, say a loaded word and sometimes it's being used. Uh, maybe abused as a phrase by developers. And you mentioned maybe talking about bad code or things that they disagree with. What have have you seen some ineffective ways that developers have tried to explain why things needed to be changed that was uh, maybe what kind of aligned with what you see, how you would call technical debt, that uh, to effectively get the product owners, stakeholders, people with the, the budgets to approve making some changes that might not seemingly make a big difference to say the customers or clients user experience but underneath the hood there's going to be some make a bigger impact how have you seen that done effectively
1: so this week at buzzbud we're doing what we call a sustainability week which is a a moment where engineers from all of the different squads all of the different teams collaborate together and we're tackling what we will call technical debt. Well, we we do mostly maintenance work and related from business concerns and that kind of thing. So we're exactly in that moment where uh, (laughs) that kind of work, that's also a way for us to uh, make sure that we we keep doing that, uh, even if people don't do that in teams. Um, So I started working on something because I noticed that on my code base, uh, or integration tests, they're uh, so using the database, but they, they don't clean up the database between each test, which would be a good practice to, to, to make sure that all of the tests are independent from each other. Like when one test fails, it doesn't pollute the other test, as we have. So I wanted to do that. And um, in terms of business value, uh, my argument is that it will make a developer more efficient, because Today, when you have to write an integration test, you need to think about cleaning the database yourself. And cleaning the database means you need to do that in the correct order uh, because of the foreign key constraints and all of that. So I wanted to like automate all of that so people don't have to think about it anymore. And I, I, I started to do that. And then I realized that like, I spent... Uh, two, two three hours like half a day on it and i realized uh, that more than 50 percent of our tests were actually depending on that behavior the, the data being persisted so i stopped <laughs> and i think again about that because i had actually two issues first every time people want to clean up the database they need to do it again and they need to like figure out what needs to be clear in what in what order. So that was not really efficient, and then there is this um, like the test might be coupled, but it turned out that it would be too much work for me to spend to clean up all of the all of these tests. Like it's two thousand five hundred tests, which is fifty percent of our uh, test suite. So we have five thousand tests. So that will be a, an insane amount of tests to clean up, and that does not worth it for the business. So I changed. My, my goal. And now what I'm doing is just, I have one function that clean up the database and anyone can call. So it's not perfect, but I'm happy that I was able to think about the business value of what I was doing. If I was just focused on, okay, this is not great. It's not the way you do things uh, in an ideal world. And I want to resolve that debt. I would spend weeks, maybe just days, but probably weeks on trying to solve that issue that doesn't really bring value. Like the money I will be paid to do that for the company, it will be a waste. So it happens that sometimes as developers, we, we focus on a problem, on a technical issue, and, and we forget to stop sometime and think about the, like the return on investment if, if you want. And sometimes situations are not great, especially on existing code. Like things are not the way you would like them to be. But the thing is, fixing that maybe is not worth it. So thinking about technical debt and and arguing with uh, people from the business value, you really need to think hard on, okay, why is it really a problem beyond being not ideal like is it really a problem what kind of issues is it causing and and what is the impact for personal developer productivity but at the end it has an impact on the company um, budget and on the on the end user like what you are able to deliver as features so it's it's hard it's a fine balance but you i think it's very valuable for developers to think about the outcome for the, the company and the end user mostly yeah, you know, that makes sense.
0: And when you're thinking about that type of challenge where you see that there's maybe a mismatch or a consistency maybe within those tests though, where you've got some that are very coupled to the, the state of the database and others that are trying to that, that could benefit from having it get cleaned out every time. What is your strategy for trying to help adopt a more widespread consistency within your team there or or teams and your squads as you call them there? by going through this process and you have identified that there's tests that are coupled and half of them are maybe half of them aren't is there a preferred convention that you're trying to broadcast out to the the wider developer developers on the project to be like hey going forward should we be trying to do it this way or is there going to so that the doesn't keep is that something that can be addressed later on or is there actually some advantages to one style versus another style or is that something you have to live with knowing that there's going to be this divergent pattern
1: yeah, 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 that's a very good point because um so I I do believe that apping team standards is really important. There are many levels, but at least within your team, uh it's super important to to make these conventions explicit, and it's frequent that you realize some conventions were implicit, and when you realize that have a quick discussion and officialize what should be that. Uh, what should be the the convention? And then you have that at the level of the company also, or the department. It really depends on the size of your company. But in our case, we are uh, four five teams, so we we try to have conventions within our teams, and then how to spread the conventions across different teams, like this case, doing the test in in this way, like following these best practices, maybe. So the way we cross-pollinate this knowledge is to have, um, we do have uh, something called the best practice guild. So people from each team are meeting every two weeks or so, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was every week, but it was too much. So now they are doing that every two weeks. Anyone can bring up some topics like like this one, so I could propose that topic, and, and then we discuss we discuss. So usually, the person who is proposing the topic is presenting the the the, the problem, the way we do it today, or maybe the, the the lack of consistency today, and is proposing um like a solution or a, a a convention to adopt, and then we're discussing the pros and cons of that. The main advantage being it's not to be right because sometimes you you don't really know and you have to take a bet and it's only with experience that you will revisit that decision but at least to agree on one way to do things so we we, we don't have each single developer having to take the decision by themselves and uh, potentially like not having that consistency creates more problem than actually agreeing on one convention
0: we'll be back with our interview with Nicholas in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in our industry who I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Nicholas Cairo. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your website, Understanding or understandlegacycode.com. Tell us a little bit about what it is and who the target audience is.
1: I'm working at BuzzBud and it has been two years and a half since I moved in Canada. And before that, I was doing consulting in Paris, in France. And before that, I used to work as a freelance developer and, um, and in a startup also. And I realized that Most of my time, I actually has been spent on working on existing code base. So joining an existing team, uh, when I was consultant, usually it was um, a project that was uh, in distress and they they were calling consultants to help them get get out of there. Uh, But even at BuzzBud, uh, which is a startup, I joined two years and a half ago. Most of the code base we're working with today has been written four years ago, five years ago. Uh, by people who are not here anymore, because, yeah, yeah uh, like you know, the turnover is around two years for developers, maybe a year and a half. Uh, so that's very true for BuzzBud. And uh, so most of my time is spent working on the existing code that I didn't write, that is more or less tested, more or less documented, more or less maintainable. I was really into learning how to improve my game here, uh, like solutions to that. And I've learned a lot of things with uh, with many different people at work, but outside of work also because I'm really into um, the meetups and uh, and the software crafters community. So I learned a lot of things across years. And I decided in January to set myself up to a challenge, which was to share that knowledge, which I was already doing inside Buzz, but but I decided to do that more broadly. And the best way, you know, to learn more is to uh, to teach, so to to, to to take a topic and to write about it. So I decided to, to do a post every single week on the many topics, like I have a huge backlog of things <laughs> I can talk about, that is around legacy code. So the audience is, the, the, the target audience is people like developers who are working with existing code. And I'm defining what I call legacy code here. And my definition of legacy code is valuable code that you are not comfortable changing. Or you are afraid to change. Anyone in this position is a person I want to talk to uh, through my my articles because I, I'm here to share like common issues that I faced and how am I solving them today? What I know, uh, all of the resources I've, I've read about or uh, listened about. And with that, I already discovered more more resources and I've met different people that taught me different, like more techniques that I didn't know before. So I'm really happy to do that. That's great. With this
0: particular project, are you framing it around specific te- uh, programming language technologies, or is it kind of a bit more uh,
1: language agnostic? Most of the articles I've posted, I try to keep them language ag- agnostic, uh, or I I provided example in different languages, so I switch uh, depending on the on the blog post. Personally, the language I'm most fluent in is uh, like I've been doing JavaScript. Backend and actually I started on the front-end, but backend and front-end for, uh, for years, like since I started, I guess. But I also, because I was consultant, I also had to work on PHP, Python, and Ruby, and Java code. So I was able to see different languages, and many, many, many issues don't really depend on the language. Of course, depending on the language, the concrete solution might be different, might look different, but... Many issues are not language agnostic, so I try to tackle these. And sometimes, yeah, for example, I'm I'm using VS Code and I'm doing JavaScript, so I'm lacking a, a nice refact- automated refactoring extension or capabilities at least. So I'm building that on, on the side, like as an open source project. So I'm building tooling also to help me, and that will be language-specific or editor-specific. And then I can recommend people to use whatever language Tooling they have at disposal, but for the for the content for the concepts, uh, no, they, they they don't depend on a specific
0: language. That's great. Um, I just subscribed myself this last week, so I'm looking forward to getting these emails. You know, in one of the I was reading some of the articles that you had on the site, and one of one of them was titled "Where Should You Put the Documentation?" and you touched on a number. I think a lot of things that are overlooked by teams um, in terms of things like making sure it's a, you know three basic principles like is it easy to find, easy to read, and easy to write. And let's let's just assume that the audience understands the importance of being um, of finding and reading documentation.
1: But what do you mean by easy to write? Oh, this point is uh, really important because. I have experience, uh, and that's especially true when the company is is big or uh, with a lot of process, that you want to find a balance between, um, like you want to to control the access of people. For example, some people might not have access to GitHub because it's a source code and they should not um, change that. But people have decided to put the documentation in a wiki in GitHub, so then some people cannot write, cannot update the documentation. They cannot write it. And by doing so, you are preventing yourself from having many individual contributors just tweaking it and and, and um, making sure that it's, it keeps up to date uh, because documentation is really about the shared knowledge of the company and it's constantly evolving. And you have to maintain that in a way that You should trim what is not relevant anymore or not that important. For example, you have automated something and so it's not really important to have these steps listed anymore or we are learning new things. So it's really important to make sure that most of the people that are belonging to your company or your team are able to change the documentation, are able to write on the documentation. It's very common to have a lot of frictions around writing like updating the docs. If it's complex like if it takes you more than a few minutes I would say to to change the doc, people will just stop doing it. They they won't do it because it will commit it will be a, a, a too big of a commitment to to do a change. For example to fix a typo. Like it's it's a simple change, but if I need to clone a repo and build that locally and then change that source code and and open a PR, wait for a review, well, people won't do it. That's a that's a good point. I'm thinking about some of those really small things, the barrier
0: level to like, well, like I'm always curious about where how teams decide where to store their documentation for certain I've got to meet a team. Oh, all of our documentation goes in this one central location. It's usually, well, some of it's in the repository. Some of it's in the wiki. Some of it's maybe some other documents that we use with our clients. Maybe it's like a a Google doc or something. Who knows? Uh, And so things get spread around or, and then it's just like, well, and then there's that scenario of like, okay, we should document that. But then there's like, well, where do I document it? I have multiple choices. It's like, does it belong in the readme? Does it belong in the wiki? confluence, whatever. And then you kind of get this, this decision paralysis in some ways of being like, I don't know, this is taking you long. I'll come back to this later. And then you forget and you don't end up documenting it. And then, and so it becomes this like knowledge that happens to get passed around when people hit problems. It's a, it's a tricky one. I, I know for I've seen. And so you're making a good point on terms of like, it's just like, what's the process for getting documentation Change does it need to go through a review process? Is like that? I think that's a good question, like for I think teams of li- just to think about if if we're making a change to the README file requires the time to go through multiple layers of a pull request. Is that is it important enough for it to be there, or could you just include a link to a wiki page from your README and then know that a lot of that stuff's over there? So you know, earlier on at the beginning when we, we had talked about maintainable stuff, you said like the README should include enough information to get you up and going. Where do you start to see is like information that probably doesn't need to be part of say the repository but might be better fit elsewhere? Do you have some guidelines that you've kind of been working towards?
1: Yeah. In general, either the information is in the the repository, usually in the readme or maybe in other Markdown files in the repository or it's in a central documentation. This is how I usually recommend people to to do that. And eventually it's reform that, but usually it's like if you reach that state, it's enough. The difference, like should it be in the repo or should it be in the central place, depends on is this documentation specific to this code base, to this source code or not. So in the README, I will bring... Instructions on how to clone this repo and in, uh, have it running locally. How to do changes in this repository. Eventually, I will refer to um, like if we do have um, uh, conventions shared across the company on how to how we code, for example, like coding style conventions. Say, uh, I will put a link to the, the the documentation that should be shared in the in the central thing because it's not just for this repository and then i will put um like how to deploy eventually yeah how to deploy how to do changes how to install and have it running locally and that should be it eventually more uh, information that depends on what you're doing like what you feel needs to be here and that's a good that's a good start pretty much like open sources readmes they they usually do a good job uh, in a making sure that people can join and they have all of the information they need to get started and to do changes. Uh, And yeah, the best project I've seen out there, they have to do that because if they don't, well, people from across the planet, they cannot contribute. So they cannot just fall back on, you know, asking a colleague how to do that.
0: Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argonne would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argonne, we'll give them a $1,000 discount, and in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargoncom referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. You know, I want to kind of circle back around to earlier talking about how your team uses GitHub issues and you have your uh, sustainability week. Have there been approaches that you and your team, teams that you've been a part of, that you've tried to take that didn't work out in terms of keeping up on maintainable best practices or taking care of technical debt of like, um, I don't know if you've ever done, like some people talk about, they'll set aside a certain percentage of developer time specifically for that type of work. Um, I don't know if they how well they're measuring if that's actually happening or not, but are there things that you've tried that you're like, that was not worth it in the end?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say that we have found the the, the best recipe even for us. Uh, we are trying new things. The where we are today is that uh, every two months or three months, like every quarter, we we try to have one or two weeks of sustainability week. But also, sustainability week is for um, cross team collaboration. It's this the second goal of that is to have people from different team collaborate to to do some maintenance work. Today, it's left to each individual, individual team to decide how they want to manage that. So it depends for the, dif- for the different team. In my team, what we do is we always take uh, some um, features, some bugs, and uh, some maintenance tasks. So we, we kind of try to flag, okay, this is new feature, this is a bug, and this is more a maintenance task. And they are all important, so we we try to have a healthy mix of all of them. For example, upgrading, like keeping our dependencies up to date. It, it has been something that we didn't do for a long time, and now we're starting doing it um, in a more uh, serious way. <laughs> yeah, we, we were upgrading progressively these dependencies along new features and bug fixes. But this is how my team is doing it. Other teams might depend, they might dedicate a specific budget on that
0: nice And when you're you mentioned you know keeping up on dependencies are you have you got to a point where you're using any sort of automated dependency tools at this point like tools like Dependabot, or still kind of like manually figuring that stuff out not that there's a problem necessarily with manually doing that but i know it's it can be a little nerve-wracking for teams that don't feel like they're, they're ready for that automated approach
1: yeah, it's 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 not an easy an an easy one, and um, it has been a question I've I've been thinking for a long time. I will actually probably write something about it, <laughs> but so we have depend about to open the pull request for the vulner, vulnerability fixes, uh, like the security issues, uh, because we want to be aware of that. But there are many other packages that get out of date, uh, not necessarily because of security, but just like it has been two years since we're upgrading and we're maybe missing uh, things or maybe not, but um, it's easy to to do a minor version upgrade than to have two uh, major or three major versions to upgrade. So uh, keeping everything up to date is important to be able to keep up to date and, and change things or, or bring uh, the, the good stuff. I've discovered something called LibYear.com Com. Well, you can go on Libyeur.com, but the, the thing is called Libyeur. It gives you a simple score. So I really like it because it's very simple. It gives you a, a number, a, a score uh, that depends on how old are your dependencies. So for example, if you have one dependencies and uh, it's one year old, uh, your score will be one. And if you have two dependencies and each of them is one year old, your score will be two. So you can run that on a on code base very quickly just to have a a sense of how bad is the uh, out-of-date uh, situation. And that could be helpful to have a simple metric just to just to bring the team in a, in a habit of doing that frequently. So that will be something we will be using. And we don't need something fancy, but we what needs to be done is having a process for maintaining the code base. Know about automating it, I would love to have that automated. On personal side projects, I do have that automated. The thing is to have that automated, you need to have a strong, like you need to trust your tests. You have to have strong automated tests and to trust that. If you don't, well, uh, it's not really about upgrading the version and doing your install. It's more about testing that you didn't break anything. Uh, so I cannot say that today we have a Good enough test suite to automate that process, and the problem will be that it will, um, yeah, it will be a lot of noise. So for the moment, we're, we're we're in the process of doing it manually and getting in the habit of doing that. If we find a rhythm that uh, is fine for us, then we will automate. Probably, we'll find uh, something like Dependabot to uh, be less work for us. But before automating it, we will try to. F- understand what the issue is and what will be the correct way for us to keep that up to date. Do you find yourself more often
0: on team rewrite or team refactor?
1: (laughs) Usually I'm more on team refactor and I'm not saying that there is no uh, place for rewrite. Uh, There are moments where you, you do need to rewrite because it's the best thing to do, but it really depends on what is your problem and what you're trying to achieve. So to summarize my position today, if you want to change what you have, you want to build something different, like something better usually. You, you have learned from what you have done and now you want to, to build something better and your clients, whoever they are, they they know that this is the old stuff and what you're building is the new stuff, then a rewrite is mostly most likely the solution. But if what you're trying to do is your thing is broken hard to maintain you don't really know but your clients they just expect you have the same thing at the end you should better refactor because if you rewrite especially if you don't know what you're rewriting that much you will miss a lot of things and what will happen the the client they think they they expect to use the same thing and then a lot of cases are broken and maybe for example they were uh, depending on bugs of the old system and you don't have any context about how you get there but you're rewriting it and know for the client the thing is not working anymore and I think yeah at the end it's really about the client like are your clients aware that you are building something new and they know that okay this is old and this will be new and this will be different but the new will be better hopefully or are you trying to do that uh, under the hood? Um, like the client won't know. And in that case, you should not rewrite. You should you should really refactor instead. Yeah, I'm always curious about
0: when you mentioned, you know, as you were prior to your current position, you were a freelancer, a contractor. If there were points in your career, and I you know think reflecting on my own time in, in my career where taking over existing projects is pretty much all I've done for most of my career, right? And and there have been those times like this needs to be rewritten, but then there's also that reality of like, that sounds great and easy. Like, okay, if I could just do it my own way, because I didn't, I didn't build it originally. This is clunky. There's this, this just seems to be a never ending mess of spaghetti code. And it would make my life easier if this was done the way I would do it. But you really don't often have a good grasp on what's there and why it is the way it is. You don't have that context, I think. And uh, to map all like the, okay, if, in order for a rewrite to happen here's all the features that exactly need to come over for like this and here's all the rationale behind every decision made there that's rarely ever documented anywhere outside of the code and if you can't even wrap your head around that then relying on the client to be able to explain it all to you is probably not going to be easy either cuz they don't remember everything either so um, i don't remember code i wrote, wrote a couple years ago it you know either sometimes so but yeah thanks for kind of digging in and talking about like when you think it would be beneficial to do a a rewrite and versus say doing some refactoring. And, And if you can get a client to say, yes, give you a thumbs up on a, on a rewrite, just, I hope your estimates are somewhat remotely accurate, but cause that's also a really good way to disappoint your client and lose confidence and trust with them. If when
1: you take two to three times as long, you're like, sorry, it's, I underestimated it. It's very frequent, so yeah, yeah. Well, everyone needs to be aware that a rewrite—it's not a light project at all, and it's—it's uh, it's really redoing it, but better, hopefully, better. Every everyone needs to be on board that we are redoing it. Yep. <laughs> we are not just fixing it. There's a lot of risks. So let's imagine
0: that there's a few people listening to this episode, I hope, for people who are still listening these days. They've been at their company for, say, a few years, and they don't feel like their concerns about the long-term maintainability of their code base have been heard or accepted by you know, the people with the budgets. Perhaps they've tried a few times to advocate for refactoring areas of the code or maybe improving the test suite, upgrading the framework, dependencies, what have you, but I've heard not right now, maybe later a few too many times and, are, and are no longer feel like it's worth asking about. What uh, What advice could you offer them on how they could start taking some action on that?
1: Uh, yeah, good question. I think a, a lot of people are actually in this situation. I've met a lot of people in this situation and I've been in this situation also. But I was I was lucky. I, I was with uh, other developers who taught me um, better ways. In general, it's useless to go and talk to your uh Product manager or whatever, and and ask them that like to to spend time refactoring these uh, classes because uh, it's not doing blah 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 etc. Like they might be polite or they might have some technical background, but uh, really it's not their job to hear that. Like you should put yourself in the in the shoes of the business people that you're talking to. And I think it's a really good exercise to think about it, too, from a business perspective. Like, why do you really want to refactor this code, for example? Is it causing a problem, actually? Do you really need to change it? For example, it, maybe you have seen, you have came across some really bad code, uh, but you are not changing it, and it hasn't been changed in the last six months, so it doesn't need to be refactored, even if it's ugly. That's an example. But... Maybe you, you need to implement a feature and it's hard to implement that feature, and you have been struggling for days because the, the code is not the, the, the like, it's way harder than you, uh, you anticipated when you did the planning, for example, because you didn't know that part of the code base. And now it's a good time to have that discussion with the, with the product manager, but not in terms of like technical jargon, but instead uh, using business uh, metaphors or business language. And it's all about for them. It's all about a, a matter of cost. Um, uh, does it worth it? Does it worth doing it? Like there is the 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 the, the, the deadline, the client, the the value, and the, there is the short term value, the long term value. And you have you need to have that clear discussion on what can be done prior work that could make you f- go faster after, and you can measure that. You can you can agree on okay, we're gonna re- spend one week to refactor that, but after that, we will go twice faster. So in the end, we will be able to implement the feature faster than in general, or it will have long-term benefits. I, I usually advise people to, to use concrete numbers, like um, time spent, or the, the if you can even get that into money, or the time spent also in, in bug fixing. If you have less bugs to fix, you have more time to implement new features. And finally, I would like to say that that's how we do it today so we're quite transparent in, in our communication inside our team so yes our project manager he knows about refactoring and we talk about that between developers but he is here so he is aware of all of that but in terms of the issues we're tackling some of them are maintenance but most of the refactorings happens in the features issues so, say we are implementing a consolation plan for a specific operator. So, we try a new feature and we, we, we do some um, shortcuts to have that. OK, all good. And then finally, it works. So, we want to enable that for more operators and more use cases. But first, we need to refactor and clean up the technical debt and, and, and to refactor before we can implement the feature. But this is part of implementing the feature. Like, we don't say, we first need to have an issue to refactor this we say okay we can do that but it will include some refactoring work just like it will include the fact that we we write tests to 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 code this feature so it is part of the package when we do estimate the how much time it will take to to implement this feature we take into consideration that we will add tests we will refactor the code Bonus point if we if that's a part of the code base we don't know, that still happens. Sometimes we, we have to work on the part of the code base that we absolutely don't know. So in this case, we make it clear. We have never been there before. There will be unknowns. And maybe we'll come back and say, OK, we need to refactor all of this before we can do that. And by being honest here on, OK, it takes this amount of time to do the test, refactor, and implement the feature. Then we can have a honest discussion on what do you need. What do you want, and how do you prioritize the work?
0: I think that's some really good advice. There, you're thinking about like setting the scene or the pr- the prep work that needs to go before you start writing the new code to build a feature. Like, how long is it? You know, I'm thinking about um, in a past part of my life, I was a p- I painted houses for like three years when I it, like before um, I started programming for a living and thinking about when we'd get a a request for an estimate for painting, you didn't think, well, assuming I have everything ready and I can just start putting paint directly on the wall, you know, it'll take me an hour to paint that wall, but it's like, okay, but I got to, we got to do some paint sample colors. We got to go pick up the paint. We need to move stuff around in the living room or whatever to make space. We got to prepare the room so that we don't mess up other areas of the room. Like that stuff takes time. Yeah. And then when I actually start slapping paint on the wall. It's going to take me an hour to do that, that small section or whatever, but it takes like four hours to do the whole thing. So I think oftentimes I hear developers see those things like writing tests or doing some refactoring as like, well, this is extra stuff, not part of the prerequisites to do the work. And I think it's like, do you need to ask a stakeholder or project manager or product owner for permission to write tests? I think is a weird way to phrase it, whereas like because I think the other expectation of anyone that's paying you to work on their software is to know that you feel confident that what you've developed works. So how are you testing it? They're not saying, well, I want you to manually click around in your web browser and test this and then ask someone else to automatically, you know, go manually go around and click around and try doing that in two or three different browsers and different devices. Please do that manually every single time. No one's asking you to do that. But that's basically the trade off you're making when you're saying, "I'm not going to write some automated tests and I've not obviously automated testing doesn't cover every little edge case there, but that is the that's the reason why we have tooling like automated testing around is so that we can speed up things in our process, save more money in the long run, and make our lives easier but it I don't feel like we need to ask for permission as much as I think developers like to think they do, so I don't know,
1: yeah. A classic mistake. So, if there is one thing people can can uh, remember uh, after this podcast is, if you find yourself at stand up saying "I'm done," but I just need to write the test now, don't say don't say you're done. You're not done. You you like writing the test is part of of what you need to do. So, whether you write the test before or after, it's up to you. But writing the test, as you said, is part of making sure that I can come come back to this. I won't waste time trying to debug or I won't break the thing and then the end user will be testing for me. They will report it doesn't work and, and then I will need to come back. But like in two months on this, like it's part of the of the job. So you're done when it's refactored, it's implemented, it's tested, and you have shipped everything as required with the expected quality. And it's is it done when it's merged in your environment? It depends if if that's, a, for example, if we did use feature toggling, it is done when the feature toggling is adopted or rejected. Otherwise, you forget about them. <laughs> so with that, where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Yeah, well, uh, the simplest way for people to follow me will be to go on UnderstandLegacyCode.com, and from here they will find my my Twitter, and they can subscribe to my mailing list. Um, uh, like, and if I have any uh, further project, I will put post it here. So, UnderstandLegacyCode.com, join me here, and uh, and if you want to get in touch, usually Twitter is the best way to to reach me out. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on
0: Maintainable, Nicholas. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Robbie.